You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Go ahead and grab your Bible and join me in Psalm 14. We're spending the summer in the Psalms and just looking at uh, some different Psalms, uh, remembering that they are written in poetry form or, or literally lyric form. They originally would have had uh, some kind of a tune that would have been sung to them. Uh, some of them were intended to be written as, um, as uh, uh, you know, uh, the, I think the technical term for it is an earworm. Have you guys ever heard of that before? Earworms are those songs that get stuck in your head. Right, like I could, I could say them now, and you'd be humming them all the rest of the week, and you'd be like, "Curse you, Chris Cop!" Right, you know, those kind of things, mostly related to like Disney princess movies and things like that. Um, some of them were intended to be traveling songs, once to kind of get you in the right state of mind. If almost, if you think of if there was specific songs that we gave you to sing on your way from your house to church on Sunday morning, just to get your mind wrapped around the idea of who God is and who we are and what God is intending to do. Uh, they would, those would be called Psalms of Ascent, where they would be carrying those up. Then there are uh, theological psalms um, that are. Uh, intended to really just teach theology but through song to help make it stick in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. Um, And today we're going to be reading one of those and it's one that's a challenging one. It doesn't, if you think about it as uh, as you read the words and you think about putting it to song, you're like, this just doesn't seem like a fun song to sing. Uh, as you you know, as you think of what it what it says, but it was intended to be something that struck the heart in such a way to jar us out of what is normal, what just feels comfortable, especially those things that we assume about ourselves and about our own spirituality, uh, and to shake us towards reality of who God is. Psalm 14 reads this way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all workers or do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. Who would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted? But the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores His captive people. Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. This is the Word of the Lord. We find ourselves in a moment, again as Christians, oftentimes saying things in a culture, in a moment, in a world that... The world looks back on us and calls us, at best, old-fashioned, and at worst, bigoted or narrow-minded or whatever other adjective or expletive you want to throw in at the midst of that. 
Uh, and yet, what it means for us to be a Christian is for us to not embrace just simply what we feel like we like, not to embrace what we feel seems pragmatic or uh, you know fitting with the times, but to embrace what it is that God has said. If there is a God and He has spoken, then what He says is ultimate and we are to embrace it with everything that we have, regardless of how we feel about it or how it pushes against us. Uh, and this is why this psalm was written to the, the Jewish people. Uh, there are some scholars that think that Psalm 14, and I think it's Psalm 56, uh, were actually just two lines or two stanzas of the same psalm, uh, or two versions, if you will, because they read almost line for line the exact same. Uh, and they they're stark. They're they're again. If you read through these, this doesn't seem like yeah. That's a catchy tune, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no guy like you're not gonna. You know, that's not gonna be probably one of those earworms that you're sitting there uh, twiddling along. <clears throat> Though my rendition of it, you might that might be that might stick with you for a while. Um, <clears throat> but it's intended again as one of those to shock the heart, uh, to to you know be abrupt. Uh, oftentimes, you know, we, we think of um, Jesus and Scripture and those things as being soft and gentle and that kind of stuff. And very often, Scripture is very much the opposite. It's, it's very raw. It's very uh, kind of in your face and intentionally so um, because it's intended to help us correct things that are not true of us or that ought not be true of us. And he begins that very bluntly with this by saying that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The concept of the fool is a literary term that's used very often throughout the wisdom literature uh, in, uh, in Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, and, and multiple times in Psalms. Uh, and it's uh, along the lines of um, somebody that people on the outside looking in with rational minds cannot conceive that this person would hold this kind of understanding. That's the fool. Uh, another way you might say it is the idiot, right? Uh, how many of you are familiar with one of the, the most crazy uh, conspiracy theories, I think, that's out there right now that birds aren't real? Have you guys heard of this? So this is a legit conspiracy theory that people are adhering to, that people like literally buying vans, have it plastered on the side of vans, driving through towns, that birds aren't real. Birds have gone extinct, and the United States government and the One World Order have created drones that we think are birds. This is why when you're driving down the highway and you see birds perched on power lines, they're recharging. You got a positive lead and a negative lead down on the thing. And here's the crazy part about this, right? So these are drones that are observing us, right? China uses cameras mounted on buildings. CIA uses birds. And the crazy part about this is that there are people who believe it, right? Uh, we had one of our meat chickens uh, needed to be dispatched. We'll say it that way. And I, I cleaned it up last night. I can promise you there was no drone material inside of the chicken, 
right? None of the ducks or geese or nothing that my boys got this past season. There was no drone material in it. And so it's for these kind of reasons that I want to look at these people and be like, you are an idiot, right? Like that's, that should be the defining quality of this. Like how ridiculous is it that we are believing this kind of a, this kind of a, a concept on that, right? And we can say that knowing like we know birds are real and to adhere to that kind of a thing seems like the most foolish concept that we could possibly conceive of, right? That's the idea of the fool. That's the picture of the fool. just seems like it's absolutely inconceivable that somebody could hold this kind of an idea, this kind of a principle. And the psalmist writes, or David specifically writes of this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And literally in Hebrew, uh, when we translate this to English, the there is is added in English to make it make sense in the way in which we would say things. In Hebrew, it is literally no God. Just no... In other words, for me, no God. And the fool has said in his heart that this is the reality of this. The picture that is painted here uh, gives us three, a threefold warning, a threefold shocking of this. There is the uh, ideological atheist. There is the practical atheist. And there is the unintentional atheist. And these are the three things that we're going to take a look at this morning. He says that the fool has said in his heart the true seat of the person. What they believe, what they love, what they hold most dear. This is where they have said, there is no God. No God for me. I do not submit to any concept or being uh, or ideology of God in that place. And he says they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, and there is no one who does good. Many scholars think Uh, that when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, when he wrote Romans 1, that he had this psalm in mind. So take your Bible and flip with me over to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to see if that theory lines up. Much of what uh, Paul wrote was exposition of Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, that's why you read him, all of a sudden he'll throw in a Bible verse and then you go back there and you cross-reference in it. It looks just like me writing a sermon. It's him taking the ideas and the concepts that are written in the Old Testament and expounding on them for New Testament principles. Um, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 uh, in verse 18. This is what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So what Paul is describing here is this idea that the reality, if we just look at reality, right? We open up our eyes and we see the world is created in order. That there's majesty, that there's power, that there's splendor, and that there is a system of life that exists on this planet. And if we never could read, if we never were given the Bible, if we never heard a sermon, if we never did any of those kind of things, we would look at the created order and we would say, it looks like something made this and something controls this. It looks like there is something that is powerful, specifically, uh, as he says, um, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Uh, for since the creation of the world, these two things... His invisible attributes, there is something about it. There's something about goodness. There's something about love. There's something about justice. There's something about hope There's some, that we can glean from creation. There's something about those things that exist there, regardless of if humanity is there or not. Those things exist. And divine nature, that there's something outside of this created order, that those things are knowable regardless of having a, having a Bible. With, regardless of having somebody preach or a church in existence. There's things about God that, ha, that uh, are known in the world. In fact, there are things that we can't not know. We know that love exists. We know that justice exists. We know that the power of creation as it exists is something that is there that is beyond our comprehension. And he says, all of these things have been made evident, but uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness because of men who suppressed the truth. It was known to be true to them, and yet they suppressed it. They lied against it. And so, professing to be wise themselves in that, he says they became fools. This is the picture that he paints in, uh, in, or that David is writing here in Psalm chapter 14. He says they are corrupt and they've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. When Paul is writing in Romans uh, chapter 1, he goes on to describe the reality of what it looks like when we untether ourselves from the revealed truth of who God is and begin to embrace worldly passions. To begin to go outside of God's design, outside of God's uh, created order, and to be looking at uh, the world in a way that we want to look at it. And what we want to do. Now when Paul is writing Romans chapter 1, he's writing Romans 1 specifically to an audience that is not Jewish. 
Specifically Roman or Greek Gentile people. People that did not know the law, did not know the Torah. They were worshipping Aphrodite and Apollos and Jupiter and all of those other gods that were there. And he describes that in saying that they reject the truth of who God is that He reveals in Scripture and they turn instead and begin to worship created things. Not just created things as in worshiping animals and mountains and trees, but literally making that tree into a statue of a tree and worshiping that. And making that uh, you know, goat into a statue and worshiping that. And they begin to take out of these things and foolishly turn their heart in. And we would call that technically... Uh, uh, polytheism, the idea of worshiping multiple gods and the reality of that. Uh, or there is what is known as pantheism, which is the idea that God permeates into the creation. So worshiping creation then is worshiping God and that kind of thing. But both of them do the same thing. They deny the reality of who God is and they cause us to put our affections on something that's not God. And in effect, this is atheism. It is the reality of denying the trueness of who God is and worshiping something that is outside of that. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. This is the function of, uh, of um, ideological atheism. A mental understanding, a mental reality that they have asserted in their life to say, there is no God for me, therefore I determine what is God. And mind you on this, there is no such thing as a, as a true classical atheist in the sense that uh, there, there is nothing in their heart that resides on the throne of God in their life. And then it's they put humanism or they put themselves or they put education or they put so, something is going to reside in that place of God in their heart. They believe in a God, but not in the technical sense that we would describe it as. There is every human heart has something that it puts in the place of God. And in ideological uh, atheism, this practical of that, they've said in their heart, there is no God. And so then it changes everything that they, they do, but it is a mental ascent of it. And there are very few people, I think, that make the mental work of trying to get themselves to the place of, uh, of theoretical or uh, atheism in that kind of a sense. I think the more common one is practical atheism. And practical atheism is there is some kind of mental ambiguity to the nature of God, but they live as though there is no God. They live as though there is nothing outside of our creation that dictates what life is to look like. We don't like the concept that there is something outside of us that says this is right and this is wrong. If it feels good to me and it doesn't hurt anybody, then surely it must be okay. And of course the argument is, well, does it, you know, we if it doesn't, if we don't think that it hurts somebody, does it actually not hurt anybody? And that's a different argument. But he says this of the of these individuals, the fool that is said in his heart with this ideological atheism, there is no God. It turns into practical atheism in that they are corrupt and they've committed abominable deeds. Paul, when he continues on in that, he moves away from the idea of just simply that 
to turning away from God is that they've worshipped created uh, created things, statues and things like that. But then he actually said, describes what some of those abominable deeds look like. And specifically, remember he's writing Romans 1 about a non-Jewish world, but he's writing to Jewish people and he describes two types of things, two issues, if you will, that when in a Jewish audience, just it was not a part of their culture. It was not something that was normal there. And it was sexual immorality and idolatry. And he paints a number of different pictures of sexual immorality as it relates to uh, homosexuality and pedophilia and a number of other uh, illicit type of sexual activities that are there. And then this uh, uh, um, idolatry. And he says, this is functional atheism. This is what it looks like to look at God who has a created order and has said, this is what is true, this is what is right, this is how I made the world. Do you believe me? And the world looks at it and says, no, we don't believe you. And we don't like what you've had to say. And the Jewish people would say, absolutely, this is of course right. This is not a part of our culture. This is not a part of who we are. This is not what God has said. We've, we've known the Torah, we've known the commandments, and we've known the stuff. This is not a part of who we are. But notice what he says in, in Psalm chapter 4 at the end of verse 1. He says, there is no one who does good. And this is exactly what Paul does in Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> At the end of it, he gives this thing of those that are non-Jews, right? He says in verse 28, he says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved minds to do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of e- or full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So look at the things that God calls abominable, even if we don't practice them ourselves, and to champion them. He says we're in the same boat. And the Jewish people reading this would have been like, yes, that's right. Get them. But then Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things that do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul does a bit of a bait and switch, doesn't he? Where he says, look, Yep, we can look at this world that is acting like the world, that is acting like functional atheists. 
So there's ideological atheists, one that cognitively have said, there is no God and I'm going to live like there's no God. There's functional atheists, and whether they've said it or not, they're practically living like that. But then there's the incidental atheist. And I think that's the sneakiest because that's us when we live as though there is no God. When we choose to do the things that God has said, don't do it. And we hold up idols in our own heart and our own life. Sometimes those idols are substances. Sometimes those idols are relationships. Sometimes those idols are position or popularity or promotion or job or place or culture or identity. And we embrace those things in such a way that we honor it in a way that dishonors God. And when we do that, we are functionally living as atheists. As though God doesn't matter. And if we don't care about what He has to say. This is why the psalmist says, there is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. He says they've all turned aside together and they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. It's interesting, you know, as we think about things like debates about uh, gun reform and things like that. You know, one of the chief arguments of those that are on the pro-gun side has always been, you know, that guns don't kill people. Kill people, kill people. But many of those same people think that the base nature of the human heart is good. And the psalmist says this is not true. This is why with an an AR-15 you may be able to kill a bunch of people, but with a club you can still kill a bunch of people. It's because the human heart is broken. We're wicked at our core. And apart from something miraculous, we are the fool that has said in his heart there is no God. Do all the workers of wickedness not know those who eat up My people as bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord, that they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. Who are you who would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted? That the Lord is His refuge. This perception of a higher nature of society that we put down the poor to accomplish our own goods, our own means. But there's hope. And that's why he ends in verse 7. He says, Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores His captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. When Paul wrote Romans 1, it wasn't just so that he could make people feel bad. You know, the hellfire and brimstone preacher that all they ever do is just talk about how evil and wicked and you know, you're all going to hell and that kind of stuff. That was never the point. The, the point of the shock was intended to be that the, 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 the antidote, the cure, then became that much more precious. If the doctor comes into the, the patient's room 
and says to them, you know, there's this issue within cells that sometimes they don't replicate correctly and they, they replicate wrong and sometimes they replicate wrong a lot and those, un, you know, those poorly replicated cells can become things that can cause a lot of discomfort to somebody, get discomfort enough to at some point in time there were, that discomfort might lead to actual you know, death uh, kind of a, of a situation. Have a nice day and you send your patient out and they're going, what was that about? It doesn't actually help the reality but if the doctor comes into the room and says that the tests have come back, it's very conclusive. You have cancer, and if we don't do something about it right now, you're going to be dead in a month. Now, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't feel good. Nobody wants to get the diagnosis and the reality of it. But the shock of it is intended to spur the heart to say, then what do I do? And here's the beauty of that. I don't think there's anybody that's probably ever done cancer surgery on themselves. Right? Somebody else has to do it for you. And the psalmist said, Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And when Paul wrote of this treatise in Romans 1 and in Romans 2, all of it was for him to get to this conclusion where he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand at the same place We don't hate people because they sin differently than us. We look at each other in a way that says, listen, all of us have functionally acted as though there is no God. And apart from His saving work, we're all dead. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus didn't come just to make us have a nice or better life. He didn't come just to simply uh, inform the misinformed that there is a God that we should just acknowledge. He came to redeem a people who even though God has fully revealed Himself, we willfully reject Him. And He came to die for people that said in their heart and said to God's face, there is no God. And friends, it's, we're getting into a moment where it's, begun, it's going to become harder and harder and harder for us to stand in a world that is celebrating the type of things that God has said lead to death. And we want to make sure that we're very careful to love properly people that sin differently than us, but rightly reveal the truth of this Gospel of Jesus Christ. That we were dead. That we all were functional atheists. That we all were people who did not do right. Who did not do what was good. Who did not love the Lord. That loved idols. Right before Paul got into this whole treatise of this, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, this is what he said. He says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The counteraction of being a fool who has said in his heart there is no God is to believe that Jesus is who He said He is and did what He said He did. This This is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, this Gospel, that is revealed from faith to faith 
as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So regardless of uh, how long we've been a follower of Jesus, today we are challenged to be reminded or asked the question, is there a way in which this week I've lived like a fool? Where I have practically lived as though there is no God. You might say, well Chris, that's silly. I'm at church today. Of course I acknowledge this God. That's not what I'm asking. Because I know there have been moments this week where I have lived in a way where if somebody was just looking at my action or my attitude or my motive or my thought, they would say they do not believe there is a God. And if that is true, we repent of that. We ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us and we submit to the salvation of Christ. That we're getting bombarded by wickedness in this world, right? In a lot of ways, even especially this month, we're getting bombarded by things that are absolutely contrary to the things of God. We want to get angry in those things, but let those things be a reality to us. Once that we were fools, but by the grace of God, we no longer are. And that there are people in this world that are walking as fools, but they don't see. And we don't judge them based upon our own righteousness. We pray for them in the reality of our own brokenness. God's redemptive work towards us in love and humility as we approach them. Love them. Draw them in. Because we want them to know the foolishness that leads to death and the righteousness of Christ that leads to life. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. I pray, God, uh, for us that, Holy Spirit, right now You would convict us of those things in which we have said, done, thought, motives that we have had that acted in such a way as though there is no God for me. For that, Lord, we repent. We ask Your forgiveness and we pray, God, that You would help us, strengthen us in Your Spirit. Jesus, help us to know Your righteousness to embrace Your truth. And God, as we're speaking this Gospel into the world, help us not to be ashamed of this Gospel. Because it is the righteousness of life. And it is Your power to break a dying world free from sin and death. We love You so much, God. And Jesus, we thank You for Your eminence and your redemption in our lives. And it is in your sweet and precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.